Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by uh, two of my colleagues, uh, regulars here at Inside Economics, Ryan Sweet. Ryan is speaking, uh, he's of course the head of uh, real-time economics, and you're speaking to us from Avalon, New Jersey, and I, I can see behind you, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful day in Avalon. Yeah, we've been down here for two weeks and the weather's been absolutely perfect. The kids have been on the beach every day. Yeah, it looks great. How how close are you to the beach? We're right on it. Fantastic. Yeah, so, Avalon. That's a that's a my favorite part. That and uh, you know Stone Harbor, right? You could do you go down to Stone Harbor at all? We do. Yeah, they have some uh, nice restaurants down there. Yeah, I, I like. That's my favorite part of it. Although I like Cape May. Have you been down to Cape May? Cape May Point. We have. It's nice down there. That's it's quieter. Nice. I like Cape May because it's it's very quiet. Hey, I've got a story for you. So. Uh, my, uh, I have three uh, brothers and a sister. We each have uh, three kids, and uh, uh, we go down to uh, Stone Harbor every July Fourth. And for years, we participated in a uh, sand making castle contest, and uh, we were we were big time winners for a number of years. We were well known in Avalon Stone Harbor circles. Uh, it's been a few years since we participated. Uh, I don't think they had it last year, but because uh, of COVID. But, but uh, you, you, uh, we win by brute force. We no artistic value whatsoever. But you know, we we build big castles. I expect an invitation next year because I well, want to enter this competition. Well, you, you got to be ready for bear if you're, you're going to come with us, man. We're, we're, but we had volcanoes this week. We had castles that had you know moats. We weren't messing around. Oh, really? Okay, okay. Then that sounds like you should. You belong. You belong. You can. You can hang. You can hang. Um, and of course, Chris Ruiz, Chris, Deputy Chief Economist. Chris, are you going to the beach this summer, or or what are you? What are you up to? Are you, you Italians? Plans, you, yeah. you need a oh. patio. Oh, you need my your God. Negroni. <laughs> you know, we got to look out at lake, uh, whatever. I got to play bocce. You know, bo- that, that's oh, a, yeah. That's bo- a, yeah, got to do a little bit of that, you know. That's beach. Drive uh, around in your Peugeot. No, sorry. Oh, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> sorry, I'm sure that, I, I got a, lot, a bunch of Italians very upset. Um, but anyway, so no no beach this summer for you guys, for you. Um, think of going to Italy in September. Oh, things clear very up. good. So, and do you go to the beach, beach when you're in yeah. Italy? You do. If I can, yeah. 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 Such a pretty country. Such a pretty country. Um, okay, so uh, we're going to talk about the indicators, like we typically. Oh, you know, we we have uh, been having guests, except no guests this this week. It's we're going we're flying solo here, without guests. So let, let's see how this goes. With that, we did the first couple three podcasts without guests, so we're going back to our roots. Uh, but we we will have. I've got a special guest lined up for the week after uh, July fourth, so we'll go back to that. Uh, but for for today, it's the three of us. And uh, uh, we're going to go through some of the indicators like we typically do. And then we're going back to inflation is a big topic. Uh, we I, Was that our first podcast or maybe our second podcast? I can't remember. Um, but uh, by popular demand, uh, you know, inflation, the threat of higher inflation is top of mind. Everybody is asking about that. So we thought we'd come back and revisit that uh, and talk about uh, uh, talk about that as our big topic. And then I'll bring it all together at the end. So uh, let's dive right in. Uh, and um, Chris, uh, maybe I'll turn to you first. Uh, what's your your favorite indicator of the week or 
uh, the coming week? Oh, I've got a good one for this week. Well, the one that shocked me this week, I've been following ah. closely, and then I, I I do have some things that are on my list for next week, so I can I can touch on that too. Uh, but the indicator of this week, nine hundred dollars. Nine hundred dollars on the nose. Yeah. Really, uh, Ryan, do you have a, a any idea what that would be? Nine hundred dollars. That, no, I, lumber that's prices, not typical rent. I mean, the, the typical lumber rent. Have fallen. Yeah. What is, what is yeah. that? I've been in a huge decline in lumber prices. Are they down that much? Nine hundred. Yep. Wow. And so oh, this is a, this is a, this is the greatest hits uh, podcast, right? Because I think yeah. lumber. When we covered inflation, I cut, I touch on lumber. Right. Uh, that time too, but nine hundred dollars is down forty seven percent from the high, which was uh, seventeen hundred just just last month, uh, start of May. My goodness, what, I, I didn't realize it had come down that much. Wow. See what happens when I go on vacation for three weeks? Lumber yeah. prices come cratering. <laughs> <laughs> but is, uh, other commodities have come down too. Yeah, across the board. Wheat, corn, uh, cotton. Of course, my favorite, copper. 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 We'll come back to that in a minute. Yeah. Um, So uh, what was it pre-pandemic? What was typical for lumber Uh, prices? 450. So we're still still double. double, But, you know, this is a sharp correction in a couple of weeks. And I think it it does point to the the fact that prices can adjust and adjust quickly. (laughs) Um, So as we're talking about inflation important to separate out the short-term and the longer-term effects here. Right. right. And so. what was behind this uh, decline from 1700 to 900 Anything in particular driving that? So there are a few theories. Uh, clearly, uh, some of the Fed statements uh, around concerns for inflation, strengthening of the dollar uh, may have played a role here. But more, more than that, there's some uh, question or some uh, belief that there's been some speculation certainly going on in the uh, in the industry and so some of that supply may be coming back out and um, causing prices to decline here there's also been some weakness on the home building side so builders may be protesting all right i'm not gonna i'm not gonna pay those dollars uh, i'll just wait until the prices so, come back down so going back to what you just said are you saying that there's some hoarding of lumber and, and, and speculating that folks could flip the lumber at a, correct a, so that's speculation the idea I can buy it today, hold on it for a little bit, sell it at a higher price to someone who will pay that higher price. And and th- that that kind of played out and people said, oh my gosh, I got to get out of this uh, before I lose my shirt, so to speak. Yeah, there's speculation on the physical commodity itself and then yeah. on the futures contracts, right? That's, yeah. That of course enhances the speculation. Yeah, sure. That can occur. Right. Um. But it's still very high, nine hundred bucks compared to four hundred fifty bucks. It is, but the like I said, the correction's been uh, pretty swift. Yeah, pretty swift. And so I would expect more, uh, more to come here before all all is said and done. Right, right. Oh, that's a good one. It's a good statistic. Um, and, and I guess uh, just to round that out, the statistic I've been following and suggesting people follow on a regular basis to gauge all of all of these inflationary pressures was copper prices. And I think last week we were at $4.50 a pound, which it was down from the uh, high, which was probably about a month ago too. I think we were at $4.70, $4.75 at the peak. I, I looked today before we started the podcast, we're down to $4.15. So still very high. Anything over $4 per pound is consistent with a, an economy that's uh, hot and inflationary pressures are high, but uh, 
definitely coming down, uh, moving down very quickly here. And uh, I'm, I'm feels more. This feels more like uh, uh, market forces. Nothing fundamental. I think changed. It's just that uh, the speculation in the market's coming off the boil, and that's causing you know the price to come back down to earth uh, a bit. But I don't think anything anything fundamental with regard to demand or supplies occurred, except maybe there are reports that and some indications that the Chinese economy is starting to uh, slow. You know, came out of the gates from the pandemic very rapidly, and now it's getting on the other side of that boost to growth from the reopening of the pandemic, and that's taking some demand out of the market, and uh, that may be. Uh, a, a fundamental reason why we're starting to see some weakness, but uh, still, still high, but but coming in. Yeah, and China was also hoarding a lot of commodities, yeah. and they've backed off that, so that's come. It's causing prices to come down a little bit. Yeah, yeah, Breaking down. Right. And wasn't China's stimulus mostly focused on investments rather than transfer payments and things like that? So that it was probably contributed to the big run up in commodity prices because there's a big surge in demand for copper, for example. Right. In terms of infrastructure, and, correct. Yeah, exactly. Building, yeah. Right. Yeah, building activity. Um, yeah, I think that's part of it. Um, uh, so, Ryan, uh, what's your uh, your statistic? All right. So, we're gonna have to give you a hint up front. Okay. This oh, this darn led to a big move in the bond market. The number is thirteen. Oh, I know what it is. 13 is the number of FOMC members that say the first rate hike is going to be in 2023. Correct. I need the hint, the hint was a little too much. Just a I know, little I know. too much. But I, I yeah, want to get I don't want to get yelled at again on vacation uh, for picking some I know. odd number. Yeah, 13 it by itself without any con whatsoever that would have been impossible, right? I mean, that would have been yeah, yeah, I thought you would see more shift into 23, uh, 2023 and the median would be in 2023, but Going from seven to thirteen is a lot. That's a big shift. And then if you look at twenty twenty two, you have seven saying that they expect the first rate hike in twenty twenty two. But there's a huge caveat with the dot plot. It's horrible in predicting the timing of the first lift off. Hmm. It's terrible in predicting the pace of tightening. And I think a lot of the movement isn't necessarily the core of the FOMC, which is you know the Powells, the Brainyards, the Claritas of the world—the ones that you know really matter for policy. It's the regional Fed presidents that are more hawkish, getting very nervous about you know this transitory inflation acceleration. Yeah, I've always wondered why are the Fed presidents historically more hawkish than the board governors? Do you know? I mean, why is that the case? Or I've, I've just—or maybe I'm wrong. I mean, that's in my mind's eye. Mm -hmm. I I recall that. Is typically the situation. Is that right? It, uh, there are definitely uh, some regional Fed banks that are more historically hawkish. Uh, and there's some that are more dovish. So, for example, San Francisco, you know, you have uh, Mary Daly there now. She's more on the dovish side. Yellen was there forever and she was always very dovish. A lot of uh, uh, regional Fed presidents are tapped from their research departments. And the you know typically the president sets the research agenda, so if they're a hawk, that kind of feeds through into the the broader research group. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, I I I think the given the change in the dot plots because of the meeting this past week they released their their forecast and the dot plot forecast. I think they're now consistent with market expectations. So they have. Uh, they're still two, a little late. 
Is that right? For liftoff. So oh, for, uh, for lift off. based on your, yeah, for Euro dollars uh, futures, they have the first rate hike by the end of 2022. Oh, and but they, how many rate hikes do they have by the end of 23? Uh, two or three. So you're, yeah, two or three. the tightening's the same. It's the timing. It's the timing. The first, yep. Although Bullard, the St. Louis Fed president, was on TV this morning, and he seemed to suggest, in his view, the first rate hike would could be late 2022. Correct. And yeah. I mean, Bullard, I would say, going back to the financial crisis, he was very important to watch his comments because he kind of predicted some of the unconventional tools that the Fed was going to adopt. Uh, so he kind of led the you know the policy debate. Now, you know when it comes to tightening cycles, he he ebbs and his views are all over the place, which isn't un uh, uncharacteristic of regional Fed presidents. You've seen a lot do like complete one eighties. Oh, you sound you're you're being awfully critical today. Those those Fed presidents. It's a tough job they got. I'm not saying I wouldn't want that job. It's a very very difficult job. I just. I think it's more, I'm not being critical, I'm frustrated like, that their communication, whenever they get a chance to uh, hit a home run on a communication perspective, they kind of come up short. So do you think when Bullard gets on TV and makes this statement, is that cleared by the FOMC, the Board of Governors, or is he just out there talking? I think he's out there just talking. Interesting. I mean, there were definitely times, I mean, I remember, if I remember correctly, reading uh, Bernanke's memoir, that he would tell them, like, you know, this is a very important time, and you know, let's rein it in. But most of the time, they can go out and say what they want to say. Right. Bernanke being, of course, the Fed chair. Right. And I think, you know, based on Bowler's comp, he's not a voting member of the FOMC this year, but he is next year. So I think through the rest of this year and next year, you're going to see a lot more dissents. And dissents are normal. They're going to happen, you know, more frequently. Uh, and they're always, at least since 2005, by regional Fed presidents. The last Fed governor to dissent was in 2005. Is that right? Yeah. Um, anything else in the FOMC statement or the rest of the forecast that uh, surprised you? Yeah, the, big, I, the big surprise was the shift in the dot plot, uh, particularly given that their inflation forecast for 2022-2023 didn't really change that much. It's still you know 2.1, 2.2% on the core PC deflator. So what's yeah. your call, Ryan? When do you think they uh, they hike first? Oh, now this is this is very this is I'm really interested in the answer to this question. Let's say, see if yeah, he's you know, uh, if he's. Good thing I'm in Avalon. I'm far away. Um, <laughs> I was thinking late 2023, but you know I I think given repeat that, that late late 2023. 2023. Yeah. Right, I've been saying that for a while. So the and Fed that, is. But by the way, that's not our forecast, right? Our forecast is. January Early. of 2023. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So to make sure I don't agree with Mark, I'm going to say March of 2023 <laughs> as of now. Oh, you've moved it in though. You have come in. Yeah. To March of 2023. Yep. No. I, I just think inflation expectations are, you know, they're rightly right where the Fed wants them to be, but we're not past this transitory period of inflation. And, and I'm still very comfortable on the other side of this. We're going to see below target inflation for a period of time. But I think the Fed's going to get a little little antsy that inflation's so up I was thinking maybe we should pull forward our first rate hike into late mm -mm. 2022 and you're you're saying no we shouldn't do stick, that yeah stick with it for now yeah okay Chris what do you think what's your view when do you think the first rate hike is I'm, I'm getting that that uh, bias as well but I'm not ready to 
pulled the trigger just yet. So I think stick with the January 2020. Yeah. And then let's, let's wait a few months here. Right. See what happens and we can adjust. Okay. For it. Well, to, debate to be continued, I guess. Yeah, well, let's, sure. let's see how we all feel after the end of this podcast too, because some minds may change. Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's not just inflation. I mean, the Fed. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. I yeah. mean, the job market, we may not see the unemployment rate come down as quickly as the Fed uh, anticipates or us based on the participation rate can really pick up once schools are reopened and everything like that. Yeah. We are counting for, on participation to rise, but you're saying. They may not be, job growth may not be strong. Quite as strong. To, yeah. As we think. Oh. You know, on that front though, I don't know. I mean, I look at that, the, the job opening labor turnover survey, the jolts. For, it's it lagged a little bit. It's April, but I think we had record-shattering 8.3 million. I'm speaking from my mind's eye, so I may not have it exactly right. 8.3 million open job positions. I mean, just for context, I think the previous all-time high was like 6.4 or what, something like that. Wasn't it 9.3? It was 9.3. Oh, was it 9.3? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Okay, 9.3 million. Okay. Boy, I got that wrong. So that 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 gives you a lot of confidence that there's going to be a lot of job creation here you know, for all those open positions. So I don't know. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Um, well, but don't jump the gun. Don't, don't. Jump okay. Or, okay. Well, all right. Well, you know, we'll see what the, the, I agree with you. I think we'll okay. stick with that and see. We can, month, two or we can three. mark the podcast exactly what time you said, maybe late 2022, but you know, we'll get there maybe at some point, but not, not right now. Right. Um, and the indicator that you have uh, identified for people to follow on an ongoing basis is the 10-year treasury yield. Mm-hmm. And so it had an interesting week, right? Very interesting week. You want to describe what happened this week? So after the FOM statement, post-meeting statement, and the dot plot and the summary of economic, economic projections were released, the 10-year jumped from, I'm going off memory, I think it was one point for eight to above, you know, 1.52, 1.53. Today, it's back down to 1.48. So it's gotten whipsawed, which isn't unusual after you get these big changes in the dot plots and the summary of economic projections. There's that knee-jerk reaction, and then, you know, the bond market settles in and digests it and realize the Fed's maybe not as hawkish as, you know, the, you know the, their first read was. Sorry about that, dog. I feel like I would strangle that dog, but uh, he's so no, he no, can't no, he can't no, even. No. Yeah, can't get calls. That sounds PETA. bad. It may, it's highly yeah. irritating. Oh, it's horrible. Oh, yeah. sorry. I love my dog. I love my dog. You're gonna get emails from Peta. Yeah, but and he's he just he gets kind of lost, and he, he, this is his I'm lost bark. But hopefully, my wife uh, will will rescue him and us and us. So uh, we're still at 1.5 percent on the 10 year yield. But down below it now. I just checked a few minutes ago. We're 1.48. We're okay. 144 right now. What? Came down even lower? Yeah. Are you sure? Are you looking at it right now? You're saying 144? CNBC, yep. So that wow. collapsed at the end of trading. Because I was just looking at it. It was at 1.5. It's 144. Okay. 1.443. Okay. So we've been, <laughs> you know, I, we talked about this last week too, but I guess we're going to talk about it again. I mean, what is going on? I mean, so I digged in, I, I was intrigued by this. So the other day I looked into it and, you know, we were talking like the fundamental factors, inflation expectations, the expected path of, you know, the real fund fed funds rate, the term premium. So those are the three components of the 10 year treasury yield. 
And then you brought up these technical issues that we could, you know, possibly causing these swings. So one that I potentially identified is the Treasury General Account at the Fed, mm-hmm. right? So that was north of a you know uh, a trillion dollars recently. They've drawn that down. So what that means is that they're pulling this cash from the Fed, using that to pay for the stimulus rather than issuing more bills and bonds. So oh. less issuance drives prices higher, yields lower. That is interesting. Do you, do you remember the dollar amounts you're talking about? There's hundreds of billions of dollars they're drawing down. Yeah, in just the last ten days, it was 150 billion. And that's very unusual for them to do that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this was a rapid drawdown. Oh, I, I I hadn't heard that as an explanation. That is interesting. That make that certainly is intuitive. It makes sense. So you think there's this uh, kind of technical flow of funds? Uh, Correct factor that's weighing weighing down on tenure yield. Yeah, and it's still above what it was pre-COVID by, you know, uh, I think off the top of my head, I think it's like three to four billion, three hundred three to four hundred billion dollars. That, that's another, you know, weight to prevent yields from rising too quickly. What's three to four hundred billion dollars? Uh, their account balance currently oh. versus what it was pre-pandemic. Oh, so you're saying they could still could draw they that could down another three to four hundred billion and mm-hmm. just be back to pre-pandemic levels. Yep. Just put an asterisk next to those numbers and uh, ball, they're in the ballpark. I just don't remember exactly off the top of my head. Yeah. I, I kind of cursorily did some investigation too, because the theory we threw out last week was strong uh, foreign buying. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a German insurance company. I'm getting negative 20 basis points on a 10-year German bund. 1.5% on a 10-year treasury looks pretty attractive to me, to me despite the currency risk. But you can't see it in the data. You can't see it in the capital flows data. It doesn't look like demand's any stronger than it was or any weaker than it was, really no change. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to, to to point that as, as to an explanation. But again, we're forecasting that to steadily rise. We have it closer to 2%. It's one, now 1.44 today. We have it 2% by the end of the year, 2.5% by the end of 2022, 3% by the end of 23, you, would, you wouldn't change that forecast yet. No. Yeah. It might be a little bit high because the path to higher rates is going to go through the term premium. Assuming the Fed is able to keep long-term inflation expectations anchored, it's going to be through the term premium that we get higher rates. Right. And it, we could get that because the yeah. term premium, you know, in, the, in the work that we've done in the past, you know, sensitive to realized inflation. So we're going to get more going forward and that should cause the term premium to, to increase. And just for the listener, because and this is a little bit of jargon, I mean, the 10-year treasury yield, the the 1.5%, the nominal 10-year yield, is equal to the sum of inflation expectations plus uh, the real uh, short-term interest rate, so effectively where you think monetary policy is going, plus the term premium, and that's the compensation that investors should get for buying a long-term bond relative to a short-term instrument or security. And the inflation expectations, they've normalized. They're back to, you know, two and a half percent or two and a quarter percent. So real short-term interest rates are still negative, which doesn't that I don't quite understand either in the context of now the Fed's even saying that they're going to raise rates. Uh, but the term premium is firmly negative. So instead of getting compensated 
as an investor for going out longer term, you, you're paying uh, you're you're paying for that that privilege to go out longer term. It's just very weird, uh, especially in the kind of outlook that you know I think everyone seems to have. We have seems like investors have just to have a negative term premium like that. Seems yeah, like- pre financial crisis, a negative term premium was you know extremely. I don't know if we ever had one, but in the post quantitative easing world a negative term premium is the norm because that's how the fed's qe you know buying Works. you know treasuries yeah. Is, yeah is depressing the term premium lowering long term rates right right yeah it is a bit perplexing um to see that um okay so uh we talked about my go to indicator copper prices we talked about ryan's go to indicator 10 year yields Chris, your go-to indicator did a weird thing this week too, right? Unemployment initial claims for unemployment insurance. Yeah, it went up. So initial claims came in at four hundred twelve thousand, up from three hundred seventy-five thousand. So an increase of uh, thirty-seven thousand. Uh, first time in six weeks uh, that that's happened. So uh, disturbing, right? Uh, but that just uh... it's one one data point, so you don't want to overreact and. You know, we still have crazy seasonal factors and um, Pennsylvania switched over its uh, unemployment insurance system. So maybe that's uh, contributing to it as well. So, yeah, again, I, we don't want to read too much into it, but certainly you prefer to see it go down than up. Yeah, they'll, they'll, get, they'll get squirrely over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Because the 4th of July, you know, the timing right. of the 4th of July can really throw off the seasonals and everything. I read that the increase though was in Pennsylvania and California, two states. So felt that feels more technical than fundamental. You know, it doesn't feel like the increases. It feels like the increase is more measurement issue than it is any kind of weakening in the labor market. That that doesn't. It's not consistent with anything. Yeah. 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 And I think one thing, you know, whenever the jobless claims numbers come out, I always look at the state level detail and kind of look at like the breadth of increase or decreases, and that gives you. And to your point. In two states, it's not a big, doesn't raise the red flag. Yeah. And just for, again, for context for everybody, a good a, a reading that would be consistent with a rip-roaring economy of full employment would be be what? So I still say 250,000. 250? Okay. <laughs> uh, based on some, I, did, I, think, I went back this week to do some uh, analysis. And you I, think it's I'm still there. I think it's still 250. We were, we were below that before the pandemic, but I think we were, you know, below overshot yeah overshot before i move on to the uh inflation the big topic uh any other statistics uh anything else you want to call out no Uh, so for next week existing home sales new home sales coming out that'll be interesting that'll be interesting i expect my expectation i'll I'll throw it out here is i think will be lighter than consensus um about a number you want a number uh I did jot down a number. 5.6 million on the uh, existing and uh, consensus, probably go 8.6 on the um, on the new. 860,000? 860,000, that's right. Yeah. And you're, you're light because of supply issues or demand issues? Mostly supply, but also um, I suspect that demand is weakening as well. Right. Supply because... Uh, it's hard to build and the yeah. cost of construction and I don't want to build a home with these lumber prices. I can't find labor temporarily. Right. Demand, uh, these prices are very high. It just doesn't That's work. That's right. 
I'm, uh, I, I lost my last seven bids for yeah. a house. I'm, I'm giving up. I have to tell you, so like I've been looking at homes in um, Park City, Utah, right? Uh, I've always, I love Park City, Utah. It's really easy to get to from Philly. You just you get on a plane, you go to Salt Lake, you take a 45-minute drive up and you're in a whole different world. Although, I don't know, I was looking at the temperatures there. Even the heat there looks pretty brutal. It was like 107 degrees in Salt Lake today or something. Anyway, so now I I went there with about, you know, another 50,000 Californians when the when the work from anywhere uh, was at its fever pitch. said, this is crazy, but I keep looking. And so I'm following the same homes over time, you know, the pricing, I'm just following Zillow. And so I was looking at one home and it was going for about a 1.25 million back in January, it's now going for almost two million today. I mean, not it hasn't sold, you know, but they're selling. They're selling. That's just that's just crazy. That's just nuts. It's crazy. Anyway, you for fun, go on Zillow and look at Avalon home prices in just a oh, last really. Year. I can imagine like that home you're in right now. I bet gone stretch. That, it's it's unbelievable what the the prices have done. Yeah, yeah. No okay, let's take out the climate risk. Right? They're not taking yeah. account the climate right. risk. Yeah, it, yeah. That's, that's, they get the four twenty seven scores. Uh, take a yeah. Look. I was playing. I played golf yesterday, and it's off the island. Like you have to go across, and the homes back there are just they're significantly more affordable. But they're on the bay and everything. And I told Katie, I was like, maybe you know, down the road we should consider investing because eventually this will be beachfront. <laughs> that's right. Well, that, that's kind of scary. <laughs> beachfront, then you're thinking 10 years ahead, it's gonna, you're going to be underwater. Yeah. That doesn't work. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that doesn't work. You're going to, you're going to, you're a good forecaster. You're going to connect the dots pretty fast. I'm trying. Uh, yeah. So the uh, other thing that came out, uh, oh, and Chris, I think Chris is close on existing. Cause if you look at uh, pending home sales, that leads is existing by one to two months. Mm-hmm. That foreshadows a, you know, a small drop. You got oh, retail this way, week. That's right. That's we right. have a webinar next week. Uh, about the housing market are we in a housing bubble because that's the other big question that keep people keep asking but we're going to tackle that with a webinar so chris and i and uh, one of our colleagues todd metcalf so we'll be doing that um, i think tuesday or wednesday next week um okay let's talk about inflation let's and let's uh let's uh, talk about it in the context of our first or second podcast when we each put out our outlook for inflation so let's reprise that because that and I'm, I may not have it right, but my my memory is that Chris was gave a forecast. His forecast was kind of right down the middle, very sanguine, core consumer expenditure deflator inflation, which is the inflation that the Federal Reserve uses to gauge inflationary pressures and set monetary policy, two to two and a quarter, something like that. Yep. And that would be like uh, – you know, right on the tarmac. That's exactly what the Fed wants. A little bit above their 2% target for an extended period because we've been below 2% for a while. So through the business cycle, the AIT, the average inflation targeting, I want something above that. And just to clarify, we're talking long-term forecast, right? Yeah, long-term. Yeah, we say five this years? year we're going to have elevated inflation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We were saying five, I think over yeah, the five-year exactly. five yep. period. To abstract from the near term up and downs and, you know, yeah. but not forever, but, you know, for the next five years. Right. Uh, and I, I took the high side 
our, by the way, our baseline, our most likely scenario, our forecast, our official forecast is exactly that between two and two and a quarter. Uh, but I took the high side uh, and I said two and a quarter to two and a half, I believe. That's correct. Is, am I wrong about that? No, I got that right. Okay. Uh, and then Ryan took the, the low, uh, one and three quarters to two, which is kind of sort of where we've been for the past more or less 20 years, you know, below, below target inflation. Let me ask it. Let's let me ask first, does anybody want to change their forecast? Ryan? Nope. <laughs> so I was a little worried. I mean, I was thinking about like the arithmetic of it and that we're going to get that really strong number this year, but we're going to get payback next year. So we're going to get core inflation running 1.6 next year, you know, because you look at the base effects, they're going to, they're going to flip on us. Very favorable this year. They're boosting it year, year, year over year growth. Next year, they'll depress it. So I think I'm, I'm still feeling good. You're still feeling good. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, for, for the listener, this distinction between one and three quarters and two and two and a quarter and two and a half, the low and the high, that, that, that's a, that is a material difference. That's not... Mm -hmm. It might sound small, but that that's not small. That's a that's a material difference between the two forecasts. Okay. Oh, by U.S. standards, right? Oh yeah, by globally, US. this is nothing, yeah. right? No, yeah, yeah, by U.S. <laughs> by our standards, by our standards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and by the way, I'm not changing my forecast either. I, you know, I, I, I the baseline sounds fine to me. I'm I wouldn't argue for that to change, but I do think the risks are to, to higher rates of inflation. Okay, so. Uh, th those are the forecasts. So uh, tell me how you think about inflation and the inflation outlook. What model are you using uh, to come to these forecasts? I mean, how are you thinking about it? And, and I should say, there, it feels like we have models for forecasting everything, but it feels like the models we have for inflation, there's just a lot of them. And uh uh, it, there's not a consensus. There doesn't appear to be a consensus, or if there is a consensus, it's certainly a weak consensus on what kind of model we should have and use to try to understand how inflation is going to unfold in the future. This is a, this is an area where economists seem to be flying more blindly. Uh, there, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of uncertainty here with regard to how to think about it, inflation. So, so Ryan, should I go to you first or should, should I go to Chris first? Because Chris is the kind of the consensus. Should I ask him how he thinks about hey, it? Yeah, let him go first. Let, let him go can, first. Okay. Then we'll go on the other side. a lot of talking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so how do you think about it? So what's your model yeah. for thinking about inflation? I was going to sure. say over the next five years, but you, you, you know, you, you just lay it out way. however you think is, you want to lay it out. Go ahead. Yeah, so what I would say is inflation is perhaps one of the oldest and the hard, one of the hardest problems in, in all of economics. Uh, the, uh, the smartest people in my class <laughs> went out to study inflation and came up with models. And there is no consensus as you, as you laid out, Mark. There's a lot of different theories. They work at different points in the business cycle. Uh, you have you know, Keynesian approaches, more d demand pull type of uh, assumptions. You have more monetarist uh, quantity of money type of approaches, you have more structural or cost push approach, right? So you have a lot of different theories. None of them actually works all the time, right? So when I'm thinking about inflation, I think of more of an ensemble approach, which maybe leads to why I'm kind of in the middle here in terms of the, of the consensus. I'm looking across the different models, across the different estimates, and kind of putting them all, averaging them out in, in, 
in some regard to come up with a, an expectation of what inflation should look like. The other thing I would say is that, um, you know, there's been a lot of emphasis on expectations and mm -hmm. expectations in theory yeah. mat metal matter a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you go out and you ask consumers to, you know, you survey them, you ask them what the, they think inflation will be, you know, and then you compare what actually happens, you find a, an extraordinarily low correlation between the two. So consumers are no better informed of where inflation will be over, over a longer horizon uh, than, um, than anyone else. Investors as well, oddly enough, you look at the five-year forwards, for example, so people who are professionally tracking inflation, paid to uh, understand inflation, you look at their accuracy in terms of how, how well the five-year forward uh, rates predict inflation, there too, you see very low correlations, in some cases, even negative correlations. Uh, right. So uh, my point is that um, I don't think there is a, a single theory we can point to. And because of that, then I think we have to take a, a broad view. We also have to be a little bit uh, humble, because one... Uh, you hear that, Ryan? Yeah, I'm <laughs> the most humble person ever. <laughs> the the one, th one key takeaway that continues resonating in my mind from my uh, macro class back in, in grad school is that the best model of inflation is actually a naive model, right? Hmm. You just If you want to know next year's inflation, your best estimate over time is to look at what inflation was last year, and that's going to beat out uh, nine times out of ten. That actually beats out... Uh, I don't know, Brian. I don't know. I don't, I, I'm listening to what he, Chris is saying. I, it feels pretty unsatisfying to me. Yeah. Oh, I look at everything and then yep. I put it together in a little pan and I mix it up and I put my finger up in the air and I look at the entrails of the squirrel <laughs> down the street and you know. And then I tell yeah. you, here's my inflation forecast. Right. That, when you when you do it that way, it opens up the he can cherry pick. Yeah, you know what so. what fits is oh this is this is what i think is going to happen so this is the model i'm running with well okay all right uh, no, no, what no, you no, say no. is not unfair <laughs> it's you know i get it i and i respect it but give me you must have a a, a way of thinking about things that you think right now fit the stars uh better and that are giving you a better sense of where inflation is headed right now you know it can't be monetarist theory right i mean you're not. No. You're, if you're, are you looking at money supply? You're going. Oh my gosh, we're doomed. <laughs> we're, we're going Weimar Germany. You know. So that can't be. That may be in your. That may be in your pot of models that you look at, but that can't be a big ingredient. So what? Which, which model would you put the most weight on at this point in time? So at this point in time, I think the demand pull is certainly what we're we're seeing here. Um, we have. You have uh, lots of demand after the pandemic, outstripping the uh, the supply of goods, and that is causing prices in the short term uh, certainly uh, uh, to increase here. So, I would I would lean on that for the short term. The other uh, factor here, and I think it's an important, was just the the role of the Fed in all of this, and how you know that that to my mind trumps everything. There, they really have all the levers, or many of the levers. Uh, at their disposable to control uh, inflation. So, uh, from that standpoint, they can, uh, you know, they can pull uh, different uh, policies to get inflation to close to where they want it to be. Now, that's not completely true, and certainly the last decade shows that they don't have all the all the control. But they've got a lot of power, and they have a lot of history uh, to fall back on. So, 
they can they can manipulate or they can certainly adjust the market. Well, uh, I, I think in that we, regard, that's a, that's an interesting point, but also a little unsatisfying. <laughs> the Fed can solve all problems uh, because you're not saying I think we're going to get two to two and a quarter percent inflation because the Fed will drive the economy into recession, so that if we get above three three and a half percent in the next couple of years, we're going to get one one and a half percent in the last five last couple of years of the forecast and on average we're going to get two and two and a quarter percent that's not what you're saying correct that, that, right. that's right so you're saying the fed can calibrate just enough to make sure that the economy continues to grow recovery expansion continues but we still kind of land in that two to two and a quarter percent range all you know typically and that we're not really going to get outside that band to a significant degree make you know there might be a quarter or two or three where you get above or below but it's not for very long. Correct. And they have not only the actual rates, uh, tools at their disposal in terms of rates and quantitative easing, but they also have the communication, right, which we alluded to earlier. And that that certainly can help to fine tune or anchor the expectations going forward. And, and that can help to fine tune the um, inflation outlook in my mind. And that becomes here's, a self-fulfilling reality. One thing on the Fed that kind of just bugs me a little bit, I mean, if long-term rates stay low, you know, they're kind of pinned down at one and a half percent, does the Fed still have the same ability to engineer things? I mean, I guess they could, without pushing the economy into recession, I mean, they need some help from the bond market, don't they? I mean, long-term rates have to, to rise at some point for them to, to get that transmission working in a way that you soft land and the economy in the way that you just described. So that's you're you you do expect long term you gotta expect long term rates to start moving up here too. Yeah. I do. I do. And they don't have complete control us. Yeah. Certainly. So right. Okay. Don't you think when they begin tapering next year that should put some upward pressure on long term rates? I don't know, but do you believe in the stock or flow uh, for QE? I mean you're you're if it's the stock, if it's the amount of uh, securities they have on the balance sheet already, you know, which is now about a third of GDP, right? It's about 30, 35% of GDP. Mm -hmm. That doesn't change very much if they just start tapering QE. I mean, that's pretty much on the margin. You're kind of arguing there's a, there's a flow element to this that they're No, buying. I was bought into the stock argument, but I'm wondering if the, the communication aspect of it, because we saw that around the taper tantrum. And even when they started tapering before, long-term rates were able to move a little bit higher. Right. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I maybe. don't know. Yeah. All right. So, so Ryan, uh, uh, same question to you. What, what's your model or models or uh, uh, how are you thinking about your, uh, uh, the, the, what's the way you're thinking about the inflation outlook? No, I think, I mean, I agree with Chris that you got to look at the, the demand pull cost push aspect of it. But when I got to forecast this, you know, there's two different horizons. Like my longer term forecast is driven based on forecasting core uh, consumer services prices, which are much more dependent on the U.S. domestic economy. So the labor market, so the unemployment gap, uh, you know, disposable income, things like that, that drives core services prices. And then the other part of the, the equation is core goods prices. And that's driven more by international factors. So the trade weighted dollar, uh, Chinese producer prices, 
those are all things that really influence core goods per prices in the U.S. So I kind of like separate separate them out, and then you know we can use our macro model to simulate the different paths. So core services. So you're saying that's uh, labor costs and correct. But 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 that feels like that could be a problem, right? I mean, wage growth is mm-hmm. held up very well during the pandemic, uh, and as the labor market continues to tighten, and it feels like it's going to mm-hmm. tighten quite considerably. Right. That wage growth will accelerate and labor costs will rise or are you are you also arguing that productivity growth is going to rise as well? Yeah, I think productivity growth picks up, but I think the type of inflation that we're going to get is going to switch kind of similar to what we saw after, you know, late in the last expansion when we were, or for most of the last expansion, most of the inflation was coming from core services prices where we we're importing in uh, a lot of disinflation. So core goods prices we're very, very weak. So I think that dynamic is is something that is, you know, the, it took the pandemic to kind of temporarily change that, but I think we go back to that, you know, sort of dynamic uh, for the U.S. Okay, but, okay, using your frame, which I, I think is a reasonable frame. So if I go back pre-pandemic in the last expansion, so this is a period of below 2% inflation, more or less. Mm-hmm. The reason we got there, or the way we got there was one, uh, goods price prices were deflating. We we saw saw actual outright declines, and that was related to a bunch of stuff. And we had weak, or relatively weak, or not strong enough inflation on the service side of the economy because the labor market was pretty soft up until the very end. You know, and right. wage growth really didn't accelerate until the very end of that expansion. So are you saying we're going to go back to those kind of conditions uh, in the post-pandemic period, that we're going to get kind of a subpar labor market, uh, we're not back to full employment, uh, we're going to get, and also on the good side, that we're going to see outright deflation in goods prices? That's not the to the, not to the magnitude that we saw. Not to the magnitude that we saw last time. Like goods, infl- goods inflation will remain weak once we get beyond the supply chain disruptions, uh, you know, the past increases in commodity prices, all that, because all that's cost push. So kind of to Chris's point, I, the one thing I would disagree with is that we have both demand pull and cost push at the same time because of these supply chain disruptions. A lot of demand, you know, with people going out and uh, buying consumer services, that's pulling a lot of these prices higher. But what's sticky is demand pull. And that gets back to the core services prices. So that should be firm for the next couple of years. I think goods prices should be uh, on the softer side. But I'm, I'm still struggling. How do I get to one in three, three quarters and 2% inflation growth? That, like that's what we got pre-pandemic. We're gonna get, you're mm-hmm. saying we're gonna get that post-pandemic. You're, we're getting some goods deflation, maybe not as much as we got pre-pandemic, but we're gonna get some goods deflation. Right. So you're, you've got to be saying that service inflation is gonna also be weak. Therefore, and right. also that, is that go back to a, a, a generally weak labor market? No, I, I think the difference now is that we're going to see stronger productivity growth. Okay. Okay. So yeah, the way I think you square that's the that big circle is you're yeah. going to get, so your wage growth can improve. We're going to have a reasonably tight labor market. Wage growth will improve, but we're going to get pretty good. We're going to get an acceleration in productivity gains. Sufficient yeah, I mean, to keep labor costs down. Yeah. I mean, if you look back at all the, yeah, looking at the leading indicators of productivity, they're all pointing towards you know, much better productivity growth than we saw during the last uh, expansion. Okay, so this is more like, this is good 
I, I mean, it's not bad. This is this is that would be pretty good, right? I mean, if yeah, it, I mean, it's not the greatest thing in the world. You still want a little bit higher inflation, but if it's if you're getting low inflation because of high productivity growth, that's not necessarily such a bad thing, right? I mean, no, of course not. Although it does feel like the benefits of that may not largely accrue to not workers, but to their employers. Right. Right. Okay. All right. Uh, and then the other way you like to and, think and, about and, it, like more near term is I, I go bottom up. So like, you know, uh, price by price. That's how I do like the monthly yeah. forecast out, right. you know, one month out to three months, you kind of look, you know, bottom up because you can see, you know, a lot of the drivers for individual prices. One thing, I'm having a hard time wrapping my hand around is what's going to happen with rental prices. Yeah. Right. So, and that doesn't fit your paradigm either. No, it doesn't. That's what makes me a little bit nervous. Is so, that, so explain that to the listener. I mean, what's going on with the, with the rents and with the uh, CPI for, uh, for uh, housing? Wait, did we, did we clarify? Is our forecast for inflation based off the core CPI or the core PCE deflator? We said core PCE. It was core PCE. Oh, okay. No, all right. I'm less concerned because the yeah. rents matter less for core PCE than it does. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's true. But nonetheless, I think this is a really interesting <laughs> point. So and exp- so you you now you have said a lot that no one understands, except for me and Chris. So explain, or I can explain it. I can explain it too. But I'll let, go ahead and explain what we're talking about. With regards to rents. Yeah, I mean, you yep. core PCE versus core CPI, okay. rents going, and what it mean? What what are we worried about in the future? You know, all those kinds of things. Well, I'm actually curious, and I'll throw my two cents in, but I want to hear what you and Chris think about rents. But the difference between the core PCE deflator and the core CPI, uh, the Fed, uh, their preferred measure of inflation is the core PCE deflator, <clears throat> uh, and the re- one of the primary reasons why is that the weights so. Uh, how much importance each price within the PC deflator, core PC deflator, uh, is given, it changes from month to month based on consumption patterns. Whereas in the CPI, they're fixed for two years. So in other words, you know, the CPI assumes that you know consumers don't respond to relative price changes, which we know is not correct. Right. Okay. So uh, the core consumer price index has a very large weight on the cost of housing services, both for rent and for home ownership. In fact, I think I think in the total CPI, about a is it is about a quarter of the CPI is actually housing. I believe you know something like that. Might be a little bit more, right? Might be and a then, more, yeah. Yeah, the PC deflator is more weighted towards healthcare, right? Because that is uh, the the core CPI. The CPI is out of pocket, and a lot of our medical care spending is done through health insurance. It's not out of pocket, mm-hmm. but the core PCE captures uh, total. spending patterns total. It doesn't matter, you know, who pays, you know, how it's paid for. Correct. So, uh, and what's happened is that in the pandemic, rents uh, have been very weak, um, you know, because of the work from anywhere. People have left the apartment buildings in the big cities and, gone to suburbs, excerpt smaller cities, and that's hurt rents. And that those rents are being are used for calculating both the rent of shelter and the home ownership in the price indices. And so right now, that and it's lagged, right? Because those are based on 
leases that are long. You know, it could be a year, or in some cases, longer than that. Mm-hmm. But right now, rents are very weak, and that's keeping inflation down, overall inflation, particularly the, the CPI inflation right Correct. now. But you know, it does feel like, given the, the very tight uh, housing market, affordable housing shortage, uh, and people coming back into the cities, rents are now coming back very strongly, uh, that uh, that's going to add to well, uh, the cost of housing. And that's going to add to overall inflation, particularly as measured by the CPI compared to the PCE. What so, about when the forbearances expire? Wouldn't that be a temporary drag on rents? No, I, I don't I don't think so. I mean, first of all, the, the, that's waning as a factor. Mm-hmm. I mean, the number of, by our calculation, my calculation, we have about 4 million uh, renters that are delinquent on their rent. That's down from, you know, three times that, maybe four times that at the peak. And it's falling pretty quickly uh, in large part because the economy is improving and all the fiscal support and all the renter assistance, which has gotten, it's been slow to get out there, but it, it is getting out there and we'll get out there. So no, I don't. I don't think that's going to be have a big impact on the market. I think you know maybe briefly, but uh, not for an extended period of time. So I I think that's another reason to be a little bit nervous about you know inflation going forward, as particularly as measured by the by the CPI. Chris, did I miss anything in my explanation about that, or anything else you wanted to mention about? The yeah, rents no, or... no, I think you got it. Um, okay, all right. The okay. question is, how long does it take, or yeah, to, to start does flowing it, through. And does it moderate uh, quickly or is this a sustained increase in rents that you're talking about? Right. Well, feel, it feels like it's going to be pretty sustained because the affordable shortage is persistent. It's actually still growing. I mean, at least by our calculation, the amount of homes that are getting built is still falling well short of the underlying demand for those new homes. And so the vacancy rate across the housing stock can, is is a 35 year low and is still declining. So feels like, uh, you know, particularly the, for the affordable part of the market, the lower uh, price points uh, uh, that uh, it, it, we're still gonna have a tight rental market for quite some time. Um, could change with policy, but that'll take time too. Um, okay, one other, one other component of inflation. And aren't you guys really curious into my model yep. for determining inflation. I, I thought I'm worried. That was next. No one, I'm no really, one asked. I'm nervous I mean, about I'm just this wondering. One. I, I just assumed that was coming. Okay. So. <laughs> I, I was waiting for you to say, "Hey, Mark, what's your model for you know?" But uh, what's your crazy model for? What's my crazy model? <laughs> uh, uh, but the other component is that works in your favor, Ryan. I think is medical care costs, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So what's going on there? Well, with all the. Uh, the different fiscal stimulus and rescue packages, uh, a lot of policy has been putting downward pressure on medical costs. They've been capping certain rates and things like that. Uh, and at least in the past, you know, policy changes to healthcare are sticky. They don't, you know, change frequently. So that is another reason why, you know, longer term, unless these things are rolled back, you know, core PC deflator is going to be, uh, at or a little bit below the Fed's target. Yeah. So, so the again, medical care costs are more weight, highly weighted in the PCE deflator than mm-hmm. in the CPI. Correct. It's out of pocket uh, distinction I made. And medical care inflation has been very depressed. I actually looked at it 
I might have been just looking at medical care services. The rate of inflation year over year is, I think it's the lowest it's ever been, I think, if you go back and look. I mean, someone should go back and look to make sure. Are I'm you right. looking at the CPI or the PCE? CPI. I was looking at the CPI right. for medical care. Just be careful with the CPI. The, the response rate for particularly physicians and other uh, medical services, very, very low. Very low. Right. And I've reached out to them. They, they never gave me a good explanation of why the response rate it's, it's extremely low when you compare across the board. So I don't know how reliable it is. Might be overstating the case, but there's still a case. Correct. There's, yeah. Yeah, I think the, the the trend is correct. It's just the magnitude might be off a little bit given the low. And, and I think, you know, the, it looks like Obamacare is here to stay, right? You saw the Supreme mm -hmm. Court ruling. That's not going away. So, and that's, I think, the thing that's really depressing medical care inflation is putting real constraints on the healthcare system. And so that that may result in very weak medical care inflation for the foreseeable future for the next few years. And that would that would be more consistent with with your with your view, uh, Ryan. I can already see you coming towards the dark side. No, I, 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 as you can tell, I've already discounted all of that. I'm getting I'm, <laughs> leading, I'm leading up I'm, I'm leading up to my uh, to my own model of how things work. Hey, one thing I'm gonna throw out, and you guys may not know the answer to it, but it's uh, I just noticed it. In the recent data, the core PCE inflation is higher than the core CPI inflation. I believe I have that right on a year-over-year -year basis in, in, in recent months. Have you noticed, have you observed that? Do I have that right? And do you know why that's going on? I, I, I haven't been able to figure that out. It's a real anomaly. Yeah. It happens, yeah. you know, it happens. It's happened two or three times in history, generally around recessions. So I, I'm not sure what's going on. Do you guys know? No? No, I mean, that's an interesting observation. I mean, cause you may, maybe you can take a look. For, I'm really curious. I will. For yeah. context, I think the historical gap uh, between the core PC deflator and the core CPI. So the CPI generally runs, you know, three tenths, four tenths higher on average than the PC deflator. So when they flip, you know, like you Usually. said, around recessions, but I'll, I'll have to take a look to see. Yeah, what's I don't know what's here. going on. I, could, I, you know, I, I quickly looked and I, I just got distracted. So I'd be very curious. What, I, you know, I don't think it's anything. It's going to last very long, but I, mm -hmm. you know, but I thought it'd be worth taking a look at. Okay, so the way I think about it, and I, you know, I do think using different models for different situations is appropriate, particularly in terms of horizons. So in the in the near term, next six months, next twelve months, I I do think it, it's about demand and supply. It's you know, demand is surging coming out of the pandemic. Uh, and the supply side of the economy is uh, lagging, having a bit of trouble kind of waking up uh, for factories to turn on the lights and hotels to you know, get everything going and people coming back to work, and particularly the pandemic, because the pandemic was highly disruptive to global supply chains, chips and cars and all that kind of stuff, and uh, to the labor market. And it's just taking a bit, a bit of time to get the supply side up and running here. So, you know, it's demand and supply, uh, you know, more demand, not enough supply, you get higher prices. And then you get speculation. When people see prices rising for anything, they go, oh, I can make some money here. And they kind of dive right in and try to, uh, to capitalize on that. And you can particularly see that in markets like the lumber market or, you know, metals markets or, the, you know, any, any asset market. And Bitcoin. things go parabolic. And then, of course, you know, it's not ultimately the supply side catches up and it does because businesses can make a boatload of money at these prices. They're making a lot of money. They've got a lot of incentive to figure out the problems to get 
the factories open and the uh, start building more homes. And of course, on the demand side, people respond to that, right? If they have to pay a higher price, they respond, they switch out. So builders build homes with less lumber or they build fewer homes or, you know, if the price of oranges are up, people buy apples, you know, that kind of thing. So you see this adjustment go on. And then ultimately, the guys who are speculating go, oh my gosh, I got to get out of this trade. Otherwise, I'm going to get creamed. And everyone dumps and, you know, you get this correction back and, you know, uh, you kind of settle back down to, you know, where where you were prior to all that. And by the way, that dynamic I just described uh, is typical. That's exactly what happens after, you know, every recession happened after the Great Recession and every other uh, every other one. Uh, more probably more so this again in the pandemic, just because of the idiosyncratic nature of the pandemic. The disruptions are global, and you know, it's a, you know it's a, it's been more disruptive, you know, uh, uh, physically more disruptive. So that's the near term. Uh, but I, I my model for understanding inflation in the intermediate term. So let's say the five years, and that's how I get to the two and a qu- two and a quarter to two and a half percent is that it, it goes to the, what, kind of the way you think about it, Ryan. I, I think it's largely determined by the cost of labor because you know, if you look at the uh, inflation, you know, two-thirds of it is, you know, well, say, say about 20% of it is, is food and energy, then another maybe 15, 20% of that is, I'm making this up, so I might not have it exactly right, but 15 to 20% of that is other types of commodities, you know, goods, stuff that we buy, retail stuff. And then the rest of it is services. And that's really dependent on the cost of labor. And uh, that goes to, uh, you know, wage growth uh, relative to uh, underlying productivity growth. And I think a necessary condition for inflation to accelerate is an acceleration in labor costs. It's not, it's not sufficient, but I think that it is, uh, it is a necessary condition. And in my view, uh, you, the, the, the labor market and the wage dynamics and the cost uh, increases we're going to see on the labor side on the other side of the pandemic are going to be very much like what we saw at the very end of the last expansion in 2018, 19, going into the pandemic. We are going right back to that uh, uh, very tight labor market. You know, it's going to take us another year or year and a half to get there by, you know, by late 2022, early 23, but we're, we're, we're going there because with 9.3 million open job positions, we're going to create a boatload of jobs and this labor market is going to start tightening very rapidly. So um, I do expect, and, and by the way, wage growth has held up really well during the pandemic. And so as the labor market tightens, I expect wage growth to accelerate. I expect productivity growth to improve, but uh, I don't expect it to keep up. Uh, you know, I, that's a wild card. Who knows? I could be wrong. That's another thing we should be humble about, but I don't think I'd count on that for a baseline forecast. I'd say that's an upside risk to the forecast, but I think labor costs are going to accelerate. And then a, a, ne- a necessary and sufficient condition for uh, in- inflationary pressures to develop is inflation expectations. I think they do matter. I, I don't think anyone, to Chris's point, gets it right. They can't predict it, but it's directional. I mean, if, you, if, they're, if it, they're well anchored, that means they're not moving. That's one thing, but if they're starting to drift higher, you know that's a totally different ball game. That's when you get into higher labor costs, cause businesses to raise prices. Those higher prices uh, cause workers to demand higher wages, and you get into a kind of a self-reinforcing because everyone expects that it'll all work out because prices are headed higher, inflation is accelerating. 
So I do think if inflation starts to move higher, then we're, then we're, all, we're, we're going into a higher, uh, uh, we're going to a different place with regard to inflation and inflation expectations are moving up. Now, I, you know, I don't want to read too much into what's going on now because a lot of it is, you know, time, it's dependent on what's going on right now, gasoline prices and, you know, so forth and so on. But I, I, I sense that, you know, inflation expectations are starting to move higher here. And to some degree, that's what the Fed wants. Uh, and the Fed's going to get it. And the question is, can they control it? Now, uh, so I, I think that's how you get to two and a quarter, two and a half percent. I don't think you go much above that because I agree with Chris. I mean, I think at the end of the day, the Fed knows everything I just said, and then some, and is going to uh, knows how to. They has a cookbook. You know, they've been down this path. It's well trodden. They know what they're doing. They've done it before. Uh, they'll just tighten down and slow things up, and you know, we'll get an economy that may be a little bit weaker than anyone's anticipating because of the higher rates, but they'll keep those the inflation rate from getting, you know, in any meaningful way about two, above two and a half percent. So that is kind of sort of how I think about. Uh, so what do you think? Convinced? Did you change your forecast? No. Okay. No. no, I think we think about it, all three of us, like similarly, but we're just coming out to a little bit different. And I think it's important like if, you know, I'm right on the low end of 1.75, if you're right at the top end of Two, what did you say? Two and a quarter. Two and a half. half. Yeah. It's. I mean, for the U.S., that's a big difference. But have you guys been getting client questions about stagflation, hyperinflation? I've been getting a lot. Yeah. So it, it, that none of our forecasts are anywhere consistent with either stagflation, which is high unemployment, high inflation, which yeah. is a central bank's right. nightmare. Yeah. Or hyperinflation, like the hyperinflation is not coming to the U.S. You need a supply shock for that. You need some, some, you know, you need, like back in the day, this real stagflation of the '70s and '80s was oil price shock, right? Because that higher prices creamed the economy, but it added an inflation and inflation expectations. That's that's stagflation. I or, mean, you you could, but I, I it's hard to envisage what that yeah. would be that would do that. Or current does currency shocks affect, like Venezuela? Was that a currency crisis? Did that cause hyperinflation? Oh, here in the United States? No, not in the U.S. I'm saying oh, elsewhere. Emerging oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's a, for that's sure. a big deal because they're open economies, right? And right. Currencies move big time. But thing, yeah, but things that drive hyperinflation abroad aren't coming yeah. here. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, um, anything else on the inflation front we want to bring up? I can't believe it. I've just looked at the clock. We've been we've been chatting for an hour. Is that possible? Can that possibly be? Yeah. Well, we, so bottom line. You guys, but I, I actually, I have a lot of fun doing these. I really oh. enjoy it. Yeah, I look forward to it every week. Yeah, really. Ryan's doing it on vacation. I'm yeah. recovering from a cold. You so should have seen me packing. Up. <laughs> you know, yeah, we're I, here, I told so. you guys we had to pack both cars to come down to the shore, and so I drove one. And Katie's like, "Is that a microphone in the front seat?" Like, oh yeah, I was like, "I am not missing this podcast." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so Ryan's expecting the robots to take over, and no. you're not. I guess that's what I'm. That's my conclusion here. I think they're going right. to be a helping hand. I don't think they take over. Yeah, I expect higher rates of productivity growth, but I don't expect them to be enough to. Yeah, you know, well, that explains the differences in your views. Then, right? yeah. What's that? That explains the differences in your views, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, I guess if so. You, yeah, if I, it's productivity is the real. Yeah, that's the real differentiator. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't know. I don't have much to say to wrap all this up. I think we wrapped it up nicely. I mean, I, I, I may have actually said. It, the same thing in the first or second podcast when we talked about inflation. 
and you said it too, Chris, I think we got to be humble here, right? Because inflation is a bear to model and to, uh, to predict and forecast. We, we do a lot of forecasting, a lot of modeling, uh, and, uh, you know, modeling inflation is really tough. Hey, you want to guess, uh, you, you'll never guess this, but I'll, 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 uh, I'll, the, the other thing that's really hard to forecast and it's real housing related, when I say tough, it's impossible to forecast. What is it? Mortgage rates and 10-year treasury yield? Uh, yeah, that is, that is yeah, the, anything interest rate related. But I was thinking home ownership. The home ownership rate is like, oh, it's just like, I, I defy you to to model that. Very, very difficult to look at that. Well, it depends on your horizon, right? It's pretty slow That's moving. True. Right? That's true. <laughs> I can tell you next quarter what it'll be. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm but, saying over the next five yeah. to 10 years. Sure, sure. Anyway, I thought you were going to say oil prices. It, yeah. Well, now that I think about it, everything's tough to forecast. <laughs> to forecast well, uh, to get right. So I do think we need to be humble about this. Uh, but I, you know, the thing I, I think listeners should come away with, though, and here I would, I would disagree with Ryan. I, I, do, I do think, well, no, maybe I should put it better this way. This is a better way to say it. Uh, not that I disagree with Ryan. Is that the most likely scenario is the two and two and a quarter percent that Chris is articulating, but but the risks are definitively to higher rates of inflation. That the probability distribution is skewed towards higher inflation, not lower inflation. So so maybe I do disagree with you, right? <laughs> sounds like <laughs> sounds like I do. Sounds like you're doubling down. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. We we bet one buck in the previous podcast. We're now betting two bucks. Two bucks on this. Two bucks on this. I don't. Ben, you're going to be the arbiter of all this. Anyway, we're going to call this a podcast. It's been very good uh, discussion, and uh, hopefully, you enjoyed it, learned something from it, and we'll talk to you next week. 